thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So we're in, we are continuing our study of the book of Genesis. I hope that you have brought notebooks with you, particularly tonight. I really am um, sorry for those of you who didn't. Uh, this is going to be tough if you don't have notebooks. So do what you can. And um, you might want to get that study from the web at corbono.com. Because without notebooks, without uh, Taking notes is going to be really tough to follow. All right, so last week we have um, talked about the establishment of the covenant with Noah and his sons. We've talked about the curse. We talked about the, the, the two aspects, the communal responsibility and the personal responsibility. We talked about how the two are important. We can't ignore either. We talked about the role of the new covenant in them. And tonight we're going to continue the study, but uh, somewhat differently. You'll understand tonight why these, uh, this chapter called the Table of Generations occur right after the covenant was given. Otherwise, it makes no sense. Because now that the covenant is established, and now that the people in Babylon know about that covenant, and they know about the blessings and the curses, it is very important for them to know who they're dealing with. Hence, the Table of Generations follows. And that's what we're going to look at today. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Again, a reminder that all men came from these three. Against the Babylonian mythology, or the Egyptian mythology, or the Greek mythology, that basically stated after the flood, the world was populated by magic. An affirmation that all men share in Um, All men come from the same family, share the same nature. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiraz. Let me me give you, before I keep on reading, because reading it this way is not going to give you much. It's a litany of names, pretty much. So let me give you a little bit of an outline first, and then we'll get into these names in a little bit more detail. When you look at this table of genealogies. By the way, this is pretty much unique in ancient texts. This is the only place in any ancient text you will find such a table that essentially gives list of all these people coming from one family. You won't find it anywhere else. So interesting. So why is that important? Because it affirms that all men are members of the same family. All nations are composed of men. 
So unlike the Egyptians who reserved the word men to themselves, they would call themselves men and none other. Or the Greeks who called themselves Greeks and everybody else barbarian because to their ears the, the, the sound that people who were non-Greek made when they spoke sounded Berber, from which the word barbarian followed. Right? Or the British who wanted to... Um, who um, at the heyday of the British Empire decided that the people in Africa were, um, they thought that the people of Africa used such a simplistic, primitive language that it was a good thing for Europe to bring them the more sophisticated languages. And obviously English was number one, and then German and Russian and French. And uh, when um, and so you can read it in the writings of Locke and Hume, philosophers from England, affirming the superiority of the British culture over the African cultures from that standpoint. And within 10 years, linguists got into the picture, studied the African language and reported back and said, you know what? They're a lot more complicated than ours. Way more complicated. So then the British marketing campaign switched from, well... We have the complex languages we're bringing to them to their language is so complicated. We can say the same thing much simpler. We have to bring our languages back to them. Right? Or the Spaniards who went to Latin America and dragged the Catholic Church into a tribunal because they wanted to prove that these savages of Latin America did not have any soul. So it's an ongoing process of dehumanization that people who don't live in the covenant do all the time. And of course... Today, we moderns surpasses all of them put together, right? Because what have we dehumanized? The child in the womb. And we are so good at it that it doesn't matter what the gender is, what the race is, what the religion is, what the background is. We have raised dehumanization to a level of automation and industrialization I've never seen before. That's why this text is so important, because it's affirming the humanity of all mankind. All races, all gender, all color, everybody go back to Noah. Everybody is a family. That's a profound text. If you really think about it, the reason why, for instance, this battle is going on in Europe where the Catholic Church is, is asking Europe to remember its Christian heritage, the Judeo-Christian heritage, is precisely because of this. Nowhere else will you find this affirmation of the humanity of man across races, nations, culture. Nowhere else but in Scripture. Okay? So don't, don't buy the propaganda that somehow the... Um, the age of um, enlightenment freed us from all that old stuff. It's nonsense. It's not backed by any historical fact. This ancient document is there, stands a silent witness to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because we really truly need God to reveal to us who we are. Because we are really good at disfiguring ourselves. We're really good at it. God reveals us to ourselves, and he does it in this text. Now, the geographic span of this text, these tribes, covers from the Caucasus in the north to Arabia in the south, from the Iranian plateau in the east 
to the Isle of Crete in the west, and perhaps even more. So pretty much all the known land that people knew about, and the center, the epicenter of it all is Canaan, the land that will be promised to Israel. That's the epicenter. That's where, from which everything branches out. Think of it this way. Japheth, so remember, Noah has three sons. You've got to start re- memorizing them or writing them enough that you can memorize them. Japheth, Ham, and Shem. Shem is the oldest. Shem is the oldest. And he is a, right, he is a righteous man. One of the few firstborn who ends up being a righteous firstborn. Japheth, Ham, and Shem. You can think of it this way. Japheth... The, the people born out of Japheth cover, essentially, an ark, uh, including Asia Minor, Greek, mainland, islands of the eastern Mediterranean. So north and west. You go north, you go west. You cover Greek, you cover some of the islands of the Mediterranean, and Asia Minor, you pretty much have Japheth. Ham, by far the most extensive, the Nile, the Euphrates, Areas both west and east of the Nile, parts of Arabia to the south. Okay, I'm sure right now you're starting to regret all these, all these lessons of geography where you didn't pay much attention. They can come in right, real handy now. Shem, Iranian mountains, north, northern Mesopotamia, Syria, and down into the Arabian Peninsula. In this text, when you hear words like father or firstborn or... Uh, uh, for instance, you would hear that Canaan was the father of Sidon. Now, obviously, Sidon um, is a city in Lebanon. This is a language that is used as we use it today when we speak of the homeland, of the fatherland, motherland, right? We use these terms to indicate a relationship. In ancient civilization, these terms, use of terms such as son, father, firstborn... Um, would compare to daughter colony, motherland, fatherland, terms used in the colonial times. And uh, terms of parentage used to describe treaty relationships. So the vassal nation will call the uh, suzerain as father, and the suzerain will call vassal nations as son or born from me. So those are term- this is a terminology used not just to indicate um, genealogical relationship between men, but also to indicate origins of cities and countries and uh, cultures. So we have to have a little bit of a loose hand when we go through this genealogy. Um, there are, I, will, I will point out to you that there are significant challenges with the text. Um, first of all, there's no single consistent criterion of selectivity or of principles of classification. When we go through it, we don't understand why the author picked certain names. Obviously, he's not trying to be exhaustive. What was the principle that he followed? It is evident, from my point of view, that the covenant plays a significant role in that criterion. But nonetheless, why did he pick certain names and not others is really unclear to us. Uh, we can tell immediately that racial characteristics, physical types, color of skin, play no role. You'll find them in all three families. That was never the, the point. So if you've heard that, you might have heard that, you know, these African nations, 
The way they are, the, 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 they are the way they are because they were cursed. That's baloney. There's no basis for it in Scripture. As I said, the whole thing is mixed up. So, if you've ever heard this, just please take it off your mind. Um, I do. I do remind everybody that uh, anyone who has uh, who 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 does not like someone else because of the color of his skin. And let me be clear what I mean by does not like someone else. I don't mean that he tolerates. I mean that he would have a conniption if, say, his daughter were, were to marry someone of a different color. That is being a racist. All right? Let me be very, very clear. Because we tend to um, sort of put it in a neat little box on the shelf and not worry about it, as if it doesn't really concern us, as if the Lord doesn't know our hearts. But again, I'll repeat it. If you have, if let's say your wife, uh, your, your daughter comes home with a nice young man who is of a color, whose skin color is not what you expected, and if you have a conniption, you're being racist. There's no other way of putting it. And I'll tell you right now, as long as you're racist, you won't make it in heaven. All right? So it's something you have to work on if, you have, if you've inherited these values from your own culture. Cultures need to be purified because not all values are good in them. All right? So, color, um, country of origin, all these artificial things that we created that have absolutely no value in the eyes of God, in and of themselves, are actually an impediment to charity and anything else. You need to set it completely aside. That is, if your intent is to go to heaven, of course. If your intent is going elsewhere, well, then you're free to do whatever you want. So, for instance, uh, also language is not a guideline either. We can't say that the author decided to follow a language guide. Like if people spoke the same language, they end up in the same bucket. So, for instance, you'll find that Canaan, who is recognized in Isaiah chapter 19, verse 18, to have the same tongue as Israel. So, the Canaanite and the Israelites spoke the same tongue. Canaan, though, is the son of Ham, and Israel, obviously, is the son of Shem. So language here don't seem to fit. Likewise, the Elamites, we'll get to them in a little while, spoke a decidedly non-Semitic language, but they're classified under Shem. By the way, if you have not yet picked up on this, who are the, uh, um, who are the Semitic people? Sons of Shem. That's where they come from. So anybody who goes back up the ladder to Shem is Semitic. Right? According to scripture, this is how it will work. Likewise, Mesopotamian, Ethiopian, and Arabian are all under Cush, who happens to be a Hamite and having nothing to do with all these people. So, the, as I said, the criteria is really not clear and not evident. There's quite a bit of research that goes into this field to try to piece these things together. And here's another really good text to point out to our Protestant friends who think that all you need is scripture. Good luck. If all you had is scripture to try and understand this text, you'd be in trouble. You'll really have to rely on many extra biblical texts to give you an indication of who these people were. You have to rely on archaeology. And you have to rely on history. Non-sacred history to piece those things together. Scripture was never intended to be written outside of any context. It was meant to be understood within a historical context. Right? And you need to put it, pull it back together. Uh, Seventy names are listed here. Seventy peoples, so to speak. 
excluding Nimrod, who is an individual. And he has a special status. So setting Nimrod aside are 70 peoples. What is 70? 7 times 10. 10 is always the number of completion. 7 is the number of the covenant. So it indicates to us that all people fall under the covenant. Everybody comes from Noah. Not simply, that doesn't simply mean that they are um, genetically born out of Noah. It means that they are all under the covenant. The covenant rules them all. And likewise, in Genesis chapter 46, verse 27, we see that the entire household of Jacob that went to Egypt comprised 70 souls. Again, this notion of completion. All of Israel went to Egypt. From our perspective, from a Christian Catholic perspective, this is extremely important. Why? Because what was the last command that Jesus gave the apostles? In the Gospel of St. Matthew. The great, what is it called? The greatest commandment? Commission. Thank you. The great commission. What was it? Go forth and make disciples of all nations. Often misunderstood to mean go forth and make disciples in every nation. But that's not what he means. He has in mind this text. Noah. Go forth and make disciples of every nation. That means that every nation must become Christian, Catholic. The government, the institution, the laws, the structure must become Catholic. That is the Great Commission. Not go and convert a couple of people here and there and call it, you know, mission accomplished, now we can leave. Not at all. So anybody who tells you, well, you know, faith is on one side, you know, and politics on the other, the two can't mesh, right, has, has a problem with Jesus. Big problem. Because there's never been uh, Jesus' intent. His intent is that the political realm must live according to Catholic principles. Not to mean that the church governs the world, that has never been the intent in a direct in a, in a sort of managerial role, but the inspiration of the laws, the rules, the governance, the laws of charity, all of that flows from the church. That is why I keep on repeating to you, you fix the church, it'll talk the, the church will talk the world. Okay? When the church is messed up, you bet the world is going to be messed up. There's no if, there's no but. Obviously, there is a prominence of Shem. Why? Now, Go back and, uh, you know, take, take a step back and look what happened. We've seen the creation of the world, the creation of the physical world, leading to a momentous event and a momentous person, which is Adam. Then we see Adam and Eve in a specific context, and then they mess up. Okay. Then we have, so to speak, a new beginning. They're outside the garden, and we see the birth of the, their children, Cain and Abel. And then Cain messes up. He's the firstborn. He's the oldest. He messes up. And then what happens? We see a series of events, a series of events leading all the way to an important personage, Noah. And then we have a new beginning with a flood. And then we see Ham faltering and falling. 
And now we're moving back towards what? A new beginning. With whom? Abraham. Alright? What is that telling you? Don't, don't focus on men. Focus on God. Learn from this God's way. What is He doing? Look at it this way. He brings in these Adam and Eve and they mess it up. He doesn't abandon them. He doesn't just say, forget you. I'm going to create another earth. I'm going to start all again. He sticks with them. When Cain fails, he doesn't abandon them completely. He tries to give a chance for those who come out of him, a chance to repent. Then when all is broken loose, he wipes the whole thing, picks this family of eight and start again. And he's with them. Now, if you read it on a personal level, on the moral personal level, you understand why St. Jose Maria Escriva, the founder of Opus Dei, keeps on repeating that to be a Christian is to begin and begin again. Begin and begin again. Right? And if your life is, seems to be a series of walking, falling flat on your face, getting up, walking, falling flat on your face, and over and over again, don't be discouraged because this is the nature of the whole process. We get up, we make some progress, we fall down. We get up, make some progress, we fall down. And eventually, by the grace of God, one day will come when we won't fall anymore. But be very realistic about what your expectations are in your progress. In your progress. Because what Jesus wants isn't necessarily success. He wants faithfulness. It's, it's more important to Him that when you fall, you call on His name, than that you swear, than you forget Him. Right? Most of the time, keep on, remembering, keep on reminding yourself, most of the time, our worst enemy is pride. Pride is like sand. It, it will betray you. Your pride will always betray you. Okay? Your pride will always betray you. It's like sand, but it's hidden. It's, um, it is, um, what do you call this type of sand that you can, pardon? It's quicksand. It looks solid, but it will just swallow you alive, and you don't see it. The problem with pride is we do not see it. We need to have others tell us about it, and when we're proud, the last thing we want to hear about is that we're proud. We don't like that. That's why God, for most of us, has created this wonderful institution called marriage where you got to hear it if you want to make it work. All right? you you got to hear it if you want to make it work. That's what marriage is all about, is to make you a saint through your husband or your wife. And, and then, obviously, the uh, holy orders is where you have a priest who has a bishop and the priest listens to his bishop. And if he doesn't listen to his bishop... He's in trouble. And if the bishop doesn't listen to the Pope, he's in trouble. And the man we have to pray most for is the Pope. Because who's the man that the Pope has to listen to? But you see, every one of us has the structure where we are called onto obedience. And if you are unwilling to obey, even simple things, even things that make no sense to you. Right? And again, I repeat to you, those of you who are in the Latin rite, please, when you go to Mass, don't hold hands. It's not part of the rubric. We can't manufacture... The, uh, the, the liturgy. We can't make liturgy. The liturgy is proposed to us 
and any, anyone who holds hands is ignorant or is prideful. Because he's saying, I know how to do it better. And it feels good. Can't do that. Okay? We have to follow the liturgy. The rubric of the liturgy is where we show that we are willing to bend our neck and our neck are not stiff. And if we don't do that, we have an issue. So remember that. It's very important, this business of obedience. So, what we're going to see therefore here is that obviously we're going to see Ham, we're going to see Shem, uh, and Japheth. It's very important that we know who they are because they're going to appear over and over and over again in the history of Israel. But the real focus is going to be on Shem and his descendants. Uh, so the genealogies of Ham and Japheth continues for t- three genealogies each, whereas that of Shem continues to the sixth generation and then continues down to the tenth generation to reach Abram, who will then be baptized Abraham or called Abraham. All right. So with that in mind, let's try to walk through and see how far we can get. Um, once I'm done with this, I'm going to have it on the website. And you can uh, go download it. It basically gives you a full summary with indications of who these people were. And it's color-coded. It's better than what I have here. So Noah had Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Let's start with Japheth. Japheth had Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. All right? There's going to be a test where you're going to have to remember. No, just kidding. All right. Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. So who are these people? What I want to do is give you some context, because the name sounds so strange. It almost sounds like you're watching an episode of Star Trek or something. I don't even know they had names as strange as these in Star Trek. But be it as it may. Gomer, uh, known to the uh, Sumerian as um, Gimiraya, which then became Kimeroi among the Greek, and Sumerians uh, in English. All right? So you can see the, the movement of the word, from Gomer to Sumerians. Who are those folks? The Caucasians. Right? Caucasus Mountains. Remember I told you Japheth is north? This is who Gomer is. Magog... Magog, we don't know. Obviously, have you heard of... Anyone here didn't hear of Magog? Doesn't know about Magog? Gog and Magog, right? It just appears in Ezekiel and Isaiah, different places, but it's supposed to be the battle of battles, right? And the end of time. But we don't know what Magog is. There's no, there is no extra biblical source for Magog for us to be able to pinpoint it. Um, we think... The best, the best um, intuition is that it's the furthest most reaches of the north, perhaps Russia. Uh, that's why in some of the Protestant science fiction, or maybe Bible fiction, you hear of Russia attacking Israel as part of but that's why. Because Magog tends to be associated with Russia. Madai, Persian, Mada, which effectively becomes the Medes. So Madai is essentially the father of all the Medes, Persian. Javan becomes Ionians, which is a branch of the Greek people. Right? So Javan becomes the Ionians. So you notice how we're now touching on Europe. Right? These are all the tribes that go back to Japheth. 
Tubal, metal workers, Asia Minor, often associated with Javan, and Meshach, also associated with Javan. All three of them, uh, Javan, Tubal, and Meshach, typically are associated with metal working and with slave trading. And Tiras, most likely uh, Tirsanoi, Etruscans of Asia Minor. All right? So, one thing you keep in mind, all these folks tend to be on the, in, in, mostly in Europe, and they are um, related to Japheth. Now, Gomer has Ashkenaz, Rifath, and Togarma. Ashkenaz, Rifath, and Togarma. Ashkenaz becomes the Scythians. The Scythians. S-C-Y-T-H-I-A-N-S. Scythians. Nomadic people, and most likely Germany. Because in in, the 18th, 19th century, the Hebrews would call, the Jews would call Germany Ashkenaz. And if you've heard of the Ashkenazis, well, they come from Germany. That's what it means. All right? Now, Rifath is also known as Defath in Chronicles. That's all we know about it. We can't identify this place. And uh, Togarma, probably north of Carchemish in Syria, so closer to Turkey. So it's kind of weird because these three come from Gomer, Ashkenaz, Rifa, and Togarma. One is in Germany, the other one is in Turkey. So a fairly wide swath of land is covered under Gomer. I'm sure that the, the, the term generalized to any uh, Jew from Eastern Europe. It's also known as Dipath or Dipath, D-I-P-H-A-T-H in Chronicles. But it's um, unidentifiable. We don't know where it is. Now, Javan, remember the Greek people, had the maritime nations, folks who were on the, be- on, on, on the, on the sea. Elisha, Tarshish, Dodanim, and... Kitim, thank you. Yes, Kitim. So, Elisha, or Alashia, in reference to Cyprus, or perhaps the part of the island where Encomi lay, probably the uh, western part of the island right, of Cyprus. That would be Elisha. Tarshish, either um, Sardinia or Tartessus in Spain. And also Tarshish ships typically meant ships of metal, ships that carried metal. Uh, It is a Phoenician word. Um, The interesting thing is that Brittany is also a Phoenician word because the Phoenicians colonized Brittany and they were looking for tin. And in Phoenician, Brittany is Bartanique. And that's where the word derives from. So there were colonies of the Phoenicians all across the western, the, the western Mediterranean co- coast and then up into, all the way up to England. And Tarshish is going to play an important role because uh, in, in the book of, plays an important role in the book of uh, uh, the, the prophet Jonah when, when God tells him go to Nineveh, which is in Iraq, he takes a boat to Tarshish. Right? The opposite direction. Now, Dodanim is most likely Dardania, the island of Rhodes, in the region of classical Troy. And Kitim is Kiton, or Kition, present-day Larnaca, southeast coast of Cyprus. 
Okay, so even though the names are strange, when you start putting the right labels on them, they become very familiar. Because for most, well, for, well, at least for folks who are from that region, right, you'll know what I'm talking about. Those who are, who are born here, you're going to have to pick up a map and, and look at a map. Yeah, it will have the details. I don't know if I'll publish the map with it, right, because this is more work, but I'll see. If I get around to it, I will. All right, so these, these are... The folks of Japheth, this is how much we know about them through this. The bottom line is Russia, Germany, Greece, Cyprus, probably either Sardinia or Spain, mostly northwestern folks refer back to Japheth. And by extension, you can probably go into France and all these countries, although they're not named. This is not supposed to be a, an exhaustive uh, genealogy, it is supposed to indicate, right? To point out. Let's go through Ham now. Ham had three sons, at least three that are named Cush, uh, C U S H, Cush, Put, and Canaan, the famous Canaan. Let's start with Put, because it's really easy. Libya. Okay? Put is Libya. Kush is Nubia, northern Sudan, south of Egypt. Right, that's, these are the Kushites. Northern Sudan, south of Egypt. And then um, Canaan, well, we know where Canaan is. Right? Okay. Let's go through the sons of Kush. Kush had Seba, Havila, Sapta, Rama, Saptika, and Nimrod. The only guy mentioned by name. All the other ones are nations. He's mentioned by name. So, Seba, Havila, Sapta, Rama, Saptika, and Nimrod. Seba is associated with Egypt, but it's an unknown location. We don't know where it is. We have lost that connection. Havila, likewise. Is it Egypt? Is it Arabia? We don't know. Not enough data. Uh, Sapta, same thing. We don't know. Rama seems to be Arabia. And Saptika is, we don't know, but we know that there is a Nubian prince whose name was Sheptiko. So we're thinking there is a connection there between the two, Saptika and Sheptiko. So they seem to all indicate the same sort of area, south, south of Egypt, Sudan, and some of Arabia. We'll get back to Nimrod in a minute. Actually, no, let's go through Nimrod right now. No, no, wait, wait. Rama. Let's go through Rama. Rama has two sons mentioned, Sheba and Dedan. Sheba and Dedan. They're connected together, and we think it's in northern Arabia, again. Um, now, Dedan, we think, is identified with present-day Al-Ola, which is an oasis in Arabia. Okay? So it's kind of interesting, because people who, folks who come, who are first generation, who come from this region, these are not foreign names. Uh, some of you may be coming from these places. Some of you have lived there. So it's, it's, it's really, you see how you connect history with scripture. And it's very important that we do so. Now let's talk about Nimrod. We'll have a lot more to say about him when we get to the Tower of Babel. Well, I can tell you right now, he's definitely a man of uh, exceptional abilities. It's really interesting because if you remember from our prior study, we saw, we've seen that Nimrod, that uh, we had those men, these great men of valor, 
that were born between the union of uh, the sons of God and the daughters of men. Right? And they did great things. Well, here again, we have a man whose name is Nimrod, and he did great things. But he's not necessarily viewed in a positive way. We think that Nimrod is actually Naram-Sin, the grandson of Sargon I. All right? So the grandson of Sargon I, was, his name was Naram-Sin, and he seems to be the personage that fits best the description that we have of Nimrod. Obviously, Nimrod founded Babylon, Iraq, Akkad, and Kalne. All right, four cities to begin with. Babylon is uh, a transliteration. This is not a real name. Just as if you remember, or those of you may remember, that we used to call Beijing, Pekin, right? And Mumbai, Bombay. This is one of those. Because the real name, if I can pronounce it, is um, Kadingira. That's the real name of Babylon, Kadingira, which means the gates of the gods. And what is Babylon? Bab, door, El, gate of God. It's a literal translation of that name, Kadingira. That's the... Uh, um, original name of Babylon. Erech, obviously, is the city of Uruk. And Akkad is actually Agada, okay, the city of Agada. Kalne is unknown. But obviously, they're all in the, pretty much in Mesopotamia, in Iraq, for the most part. Right? And then from there, he went into Ashur, which is the upper Mesopotamian plain, and he founded Nineveh, Rehobothir, Kala, and Reason. Now, Nineveh is known. We don't have to talk too much about it. Rehobothir is transliterated as broad places of the city. Broad places of the city. And there is no such city called Rehobothir. So the thought is actually, this was uh, Rebit Nenua. Rebit Nenua, meaning literally the, um, the outskirts or the uh, suburbs. Thanks. The suburbs of Nineveh. Nineveh was a huge city. Remember, it would have taken no, uh, um, Jonah three days to cross it. So a huge, huge city. So a, a particular uh, suburb of Nineveh was, had a special name. And Kala is, uh, is um, Kala Aka, which is known as Nimrod. The city Nimrod itself. So... Essentially, it tells you where Nimrod was, and all these people up there flow back to Kush, right? Seba, Havila, Sapta, Rama, Saptika, and Nimrod flow back to Kush. This is important because when you think about the curse, the curse was applied to Canaan, right? The son of Ham. Does the curse cover the brothers? something you have to look into a little bit more, because it was specifically applied to Canaan, not to Cush and not to Put. And you will see that the relationship is very different in Scripture. It is no surprise that God tells Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites, right? because they are of the line of Cush, not Canaan. Okay? Yet at the same time, which is very, very interesting to us, 
is when Solomon wants to build his temple, he goes and makes a deal with the king of Tyre. Now, Tyre is the son of Sidon. Tyre is not as ancient as Sidon. Sidon is more ancient than Tyre. And these are of the line of Canaan. And there are two ways to look at it. Number one, you can look at it as, as a sign that God wants His people back into the temple. All the people will serve the temple of the Lord. Right? Even those who, who come from the accursed line of Canaan. Two, you can look at it as a sign of the downfall of Solomon himself, who started being uh, an image of Christ and ended up being an image of the Antichrist. And I think there's both. Both of this is true. When you, 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 I hope that by now you're starting to understand the impact of these statements that Matthew makes when he says, Jesus went and walked in the district of Sidon. I mean, you can be more unclean than that. What is he doing walking over there? These people are accursed. And that's why the apostles told the Lord, send her away. The Syrophoenician woman. She's bothering us, send her away. And their logic is they're accursed. What is he doing here? I'm, I, I am wanting to bet that when he was walking over there, he was walking and they were walking 70 feet away. Way behind him. With the cloak covering their faces. So we're not here. You have to understand it from the perspective of the Jews. Because you are breaking the commandment by dealing with these people. And history showed them over and over again what happens when they deal with them. What was the worst part of the history of Israel? When did it happen? Under who? There's one name that you know. It's the name of a woman. Jezebel. Jezebel. Where is she from? She's a Canaanite. She's a Canaanite. That's a horrendous part of the, the, the history of Israel. Now I know for many who are from Lebanon, it's kind of hard because we're talking about our own land and we want to be proud. I mean, if you can find somebody who's more proud about his land than the Lebanese, I'd like to meet that guy. We should all be in the Guinness Book of Record. All right? So for somebody living in Lebanon, Sidon, I mean, some people here are from Sidon. You understand what I'm saying? The people sitting here with you are from this place. There are people here who are from potentially places close to Nineveh. This is not, oh, well, these barbaric people. Far. These are people we know. They're living right now. And to think of it this way is really hard because you're patriotic. It's like saying, you know, all of California was accursed. And it's hard. It's hard. Try to level the criticism and you'll see what happens when you talk to Americans about their particular city or way of life. They clamp down. That's their way of showing that they're not, they don't agree with you. They just clamp down. You know, you talk to somebody from, from the Mediterranean basin and you start shouting, right? It's a completely different way, but it's the same thing. Same proud. Hey, this is a beautiful place. What are you talking about? So it's hard. This is not just, oh, nice, cute history. This is reality. When Christ walked in Sidon, it's, it's, it's sometimes really, it's a pet peeve of mine, especially... About, I'm Lebanese, so I can talk about my own people, right? Their, their, their pride puffs up. Oh, wow, Christ walked this. You know why he walked there? Why did he walk there? Why did he go to Sidon? Why? Because it's a beautiful touristic place. He wanted to eat a fish. What did he say? I have come for whom? The sinners. 
He walked there because it was a wretched place. He's showing his apostles where they have to go. He wasn't walking there. He was a promenade. Just going there to enjoy himself. No, this was a wretched... Spiritually, it was a wretched place. Under a curse, the curse imposed by him. Do you understand? And the dialogue he had with the Syrophoenician woman is absolutely extraordinary when you think about it. Her, her daughter is possessed by a demon. Well, what? So the whole thing is cursed. Huh, what's so new? Why should you be surprised? And he tells her, I have not come. Right? It is not lawful to, right? to give the food of the children to the dogs. And people get offended. There's nothing offensive about it. Dog is a nice name. Accursed is a much, would be closer to reality. And then her answer is, is the one that blows your mind away. The greatest theologian in, this, in, the, in Scripture, by the way, is a woman. That's her. Because her understanding of who Christ is and her answer back to Him, yes, Lord, Lord, but even the dogs eat from the scraps that fall back from the table of the children. She, in this one sentence, told him about the nature of the church, that the world is fed by the church, that the graces that the world receive come from the table of the children. She said, I believe in you, but I believe in the church as well. And because she said those things, he said, Oh woman, how great is your faith. As far as I'm concerned, that's a, that's a, uh, that's a stamp of canonization right there. One sentence. No argument, no discussion. Yes, Lord. The, how, I am... Uh, the, this is the first person I'd like to meet in heaven. Because I want to know how did she get it. She, has not, she didn't have the church. She didn't have any of that. How did she get, how did she get it? How did she get it? It, 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 it you know, blows my mind away. How did this woman, whose daughter was possessed by a demon, which means God knows what was going on in their house. How did she get it? So I'm hoping you start to feel at least the force of the in essence, the scandal that Jesus was causing to the, to the Jews. What is he talking about? He's really creating a difficulty for them because everything that they had learned was to stay away from these people. And what was the problem? The problem was precisely that they thought that he should be like them. That he should be like them. Instead of thinking, we should be like him. That's their unbelief. That's why he accuses them of unbelief. Because they could not understand that these laws that were put in place were provisional due to their weakness and lack of holiness. But when the Holy One of God comes, there is no sin that He cannot forgive. And when He touches the unclean, He doesn't become unclean. But the one who is unclean is cleansed. Whereas in their case, if they were to touch the unclean, they would become unclean because they have no holiness in them. And don't get me wrong, they, the Jewish people, were the best of the best. I don't want you to think, oh, well, you know, these people, the Jews, what could they have? No, they were the best of the best, the cream of the crop. You would not have found anyone better than the, than the people of Israel as far as trying to keep the law and live the commandment and know the truth. Nowhere would you find anybody like them. And they could not. 
So now you understand St. Paul. St. Paul has this holistic view. St. Paul looked at the entire picture in the light of this text. So all the nations, all the nations, all of them in front of his eyes. East, west, north. He traveled all over the place. He knew people directly. It wasn't theory for him. He looked at everybody. And what was the great intuition that he had? The great intuition that he had was, we are all unclean. There is nobody on the surface of this planet who is clean. And why could he make that, that, that intuition? What led him to make this intuition? The encounter with Jesus Christ. He had something to contrast with. He met the one who was clean. He met the Holy One of God. And then he can contrast and realize, ha, huh, in front of the Holy One of God, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you're in the same boat. You both stink. Maybe the Jews think a little less. But you all stink. We all stink. That is the fundamental thrust of the entire message of St. Paul across all his letters. The unifying Message that comes loud and clear. Loud and clear. All the nations go back to Noah. Yeah, Noah was a holy man of God. But you know what? He did not have grace. And without grace, you can't be saved. So it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. None of that matters. What matters is that you are in need of salvation. And the only salvation that you will receive is through Jesus Christ. That's his great intuition. That's why this text here is important, even though seemingly boring, because it's just a list of names. So, Canaan, Sidon, Heth, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hevites, Archites, Sinites, Arvadites, Zemorites, and Hamathites. Let's start with the last one, because it's easy. Hamathites, anybody's familiar with the city of Hama in Syria? Those are the guys. Okay? Now, the Zemorites, the Arvodites, the Sinites, and the Archites. Archites is Arca. Okay, it's a city in um, northern Lebanon off, off an island. It may not exist anymore, but that's where it, where it came from. So all these are Phoenician, Syrian Phoenician cities. All of them. Heth is the father of the Hethites. Okay, Indo-European folks. And then the Jebusites... And the Amorites and the Girgashites and the Hevites, we don't know much about them. But our suspicion is that they're all within the same region. Different groups, different people. Reason I mentioned, if you recall, last, last uh, study that we've done, we know that God is going to give the command to the Israelites when they enter the land of Canaan to destroy all these people. Leave none of them alive. Okay, That's why they're listed here. And you understand... You kind of understand why. And then Canaan outdid himself. He's also the father of uh, uh, Gerar, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim. All Canaanite cities, right? So you, you kind of understand now Sodom and Gomorrah, where this is coming from. The interesting thing is when you look at the uh, genealogy of Shem and... and um, We'll see how much of this we can cover. You have Shem had five sons, Elam, Ashur, Arpakshad, Lud, and Aram. Uh, one of the difficulties, Ashur seems to appear both under Ham, under Canaan, 
I mean under Hem, I'm sorry, and under Shem. I'm not going to go in the, the difficult in, in the difficulty itself, but there, it, it is a difficulty. Why is it that Ashur appears in both? And Ashur is a region. Okay, the whole people. How come they could be both? Well, one of the difficulties of the text. Aram has Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Yes, so the descendants of Aram are Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Aram, we don't know where that comes from. It's really unclear where it comes from. But the Israelites maintain a close relationship with the Arameans, the Aram Naharaim, and Padan Aram. Um, and uh, there are a number of uh, references to Ar- the Arams. Deuteronomy 26.5, my father was a fugitive Aramean. Uz seems to be the only one we know something about in First Chronicles 1.17. He and the other three are sons of Shem and brothers of Aram. But basically, we have very little information about them. Uh, Josephus, the, the Jewish historian who lived uh, right after, he was living right around the time, uh, right around 70 AD, uh, locates Hul in Armenia. But we really have very little reference about them. Now, Arpakshad is the son of Shem, and he had Shila, and Shila had Eber. Why is Eber important? Who is Eber? The father of the Hebrews. So right there and then, you've got to remember that. Anyone who descends from Eber is a Hebrew. Okay? Today, Hebrew, Jew, and Israelite are synonymous. Not so in Scripture. You make them synonymous, you are going to get in a world of hurt because you're going to confuse the meanings of everything. Anyone who comes from Eber is a Hebrew. Who in particular comes from Eber? A guy named Ishmael. And who come from Ishmael? The Arabs. What are they? Hebrews. Not necessarily Semitic, no. Yeah, you're right. And Semitic. Of course, the Arabs are Semitic. They go back to Shem. You're right. But they're Hebrews. Okay? You wonder, what are they fighting about? They're Hebrews. According to scripture, genealogically, that's what they refer to. So who are the Israelites? The descendants of Israel, Jacob, right? Jacob. And who are the Jews? The descendants of Judah, the third son of Israel. Israel had 12 sons. Only those who came from Judah are Jews. And you can also include um, the little tribe of uh, Benjamin. Because Benjamin had, uh, had Jerusalem, which was right in the heart of Judah. So, but essentially, this is important to understand, right? When Jesus sees Nathanael under the tree in John, he says of him what? Behold, what? A Jew in whom there is no guile? It's not what he says. Behold, an Israelite. In whom there is no God. An Israelite. That's huge. He calls him Israelite. Why? Because these folks were from Galilee. Galilee was above Samaria. Right? Samaritans were the result of the mix-up between the Israelites and the people of the world after the invasion of the kingdom of Israel. After the break of the kingdom 
of David between two, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of, Solom, uh, the, uh, of Judah in the south. Well, when the, um, when the Chaldean came down, these people wanted to make sure that there would be no cultural distinction. So they mixed everybody with everybody. And the result was, was the um, Samaritans. And then they started worshipping on Mount Gezerim, the Gerizim, they wouldn't go to the temple that was happened before. So the Jews and the Samaritans didn't like each other. And above that you had the Galileans living in Galilee. Right? And they were faithful to the temple, but they were not Jews. And the people of the temple would always tell them, we're really happy that you are supporting the temple, you give us your tithe, you come down, but never think that you are like us. Alright? But of an Israelite, there was no Israelis anymore. I mean, it was gone. The tribes were completely mixed up with the rest of the world. But yet Jesus sees Nathanael and he says, Behold, not a believer, not a Jew, an Israelite. He calls him an Israelite. Wow. In whom there is no guide. And obviously there is a play on word because the reason why Jacob was called Jacob was because he basically got the blessing of his he got the blessing of his father with guile, right? It's kind of interesting, but be it as it may. I'm just trying to give you some of the text as a, to, to make you understand the context and why this is important. Right? It's important to understand these names and tribes and keep them in context. Otherwise, Scripture is obscured. And then Eber had Peleg and Joktan, and Joktan had 13 boys. There is a whole bunch of them. I'll, uh, I'm not going to cover them right now. I don't have time. But um, I will have this eventually on the website. And you can go and look at it. And sort of understand where these people are in context. Okay? So the, the fundamental point of today's uh, study is that before we start talking about Abraham. Because we're going to go down the line from Peleg. Right? From Eber, I mean. All the way down to Abram. We're going to see that line flow through. We are given a historical context that is going, we're going to need when we start seeing Abram dealing with the rest. Right? For instance, you'll notice God tells Abram, um, leave your parents and come to me to land. I'm going to give you, I'll show you this land. Right? What is this land? Land of Canaan. Oh, great. Oh, talk about a gift. You're, you're, I'm leaving my people, right, coming from the line of Shem, and you're leading me to the land while these accursed folks from Canaan live. And that's what you're going to give me. Great. I think that's why God doesn't tell him, because he's not yet ready to receive the full message. And why does he want to give him the land of Canaan? Because it is, a, it is precisely a symbol of Christ. Because Christ comes shares with um, sinful humanity our condition except for sin and then completely removes it, renews it by removing the curse. Taking the curse upon himself on the cross so that Canaan may be renewed. If you think about what the church does is that it takes people who were living under the covenant of Noah, bound to the covenant of Noah, in its full force, because what God spoke will not be broken. The church comes here and takes these people, and through the, through the um, sacrament of baptism, breaks away the natural bond, 
you are no longer a son of Noah, a son of Adam, and grafts them onto the vine, Jesus Christ. You are now a son and a daughter of God the Most High. You have been given divine life. It'd be like you owe somebody $10 million and you make $100 a month. You will never pay it. Not only you, your children, your children's children, down to the thousand generation, you will never pay off your debt. You can never pay the debt. So he comes in and he doesn't only say, you know what, I got a deal for you. I'm just going to erase your debt. It's as if it didn't exist. And I'm going to give you $2 million. And I'm going to adopt you as my son and you'll share in my heritage. That's what Christ did for us. And there are some who complain, how could he love somebody more than he loves me? You're going to have to wonder sometimes. But that's what Christ did. This is the gift of the church. This is the gift of the, this is who you are. You'll be shining like the stars in heaven, God willing. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's the gift. That's the life of the church. So in this Lent, in this fifth week of Lent, I'm hoping that you are persevering in your Lenten offering, prayers, fasting, and almsgiving, and that you're continuing to pray to God that He may draw you closer to Him, in union with Him, that He may make of your heart a interior castle where you can meet Him in the most inner room, which is the room where the king is enthroned. These are the images of St. Teresa of Avila. And that you are really intensifying your life of prayer and making sure that all these moments of suffering that God sends your way as little gifts are not squandered away, but everything is offered back to Him. Because really, there is nothing that we can do that is going to be sufficient for us to ever be able to say thank you. We truly fall short of the glory of God, but we are called to grow from glory to glory. God bless you. So we'll take a moment for uh, a prayer, and then after that, we'll, we'll take questions. Yes, um, good question. I don't think that the Scripture indicates one way or the other whether they separated or stayed together. We know that they stayed together for some time because of the fact that uh, when... Um, Noah got drunk, his grandson was around. So his son was around. The three of them were around when he was drunk. And that happened sometime after the flood. So I don't think they just took off right away. But by the very nature of things, as you have more and more people, they tend to spread out. But I I don't have a sense that there was necessarily an enmity between all three of them, nor nor have I read in the writings of the fathers that that was the case. So... I don't know if we're reading too much into Scripture, that that's what they did, or that they actually did it. I really don't have an answer for that one way or the other. Okay? The Old Covenant remains. It's not abrogated. Anyone who's outside the church has a real challenge attaining to salvation, because there's no salvation outside of the Catholic Church. In a fundamental sense, yes, because you are not being able to reach to heaven. Yeah? 
And that's why it is so important for the church to constantly evangelize. Because go forth and make disciples of all nations. Same thing. Same thing. There is equality as far as the church is concerned. You're in or you're out. Yeah. And likewise, for those Catholics who are in the church but not really in the church, the same thing applies. Why is it the Catholic church only? Because when Jesus came, he told Peter, you are Peter and on this rock I will, find, I will, found, I will build my church. So he built one. Right? The church must be built on Peter. What does that mean? It means that Peter is the head of the church. Okay? How many churches out there you know who have Peter as their head? One. There are four marks to the church of Christ, which we get from Scripture. The church must be apostolic. What does that mean? It means that every bishop has been uh, consecrated a bishop by a bishop, who was consecrated a bishop, by a bishop, etc., etc., all the way to the apostles. That is a condition that we share with the Orthodox churches. They have not broken the apostolic line. They can track all their bishops all the way back to the apostles. So they have valid orders. But the church must be always united with and under Peter. Okay? So it has to be apostolic in that full sense. It has to be Catholic, which means universal, everywhere. Okay? It has to be holy. And we have not had one decade in the Catholic Church without miracles. For 2,000 years. And it has to be one. What does that mean to be one? It means that everyone who is a member of that church believes in the teachings that pertain to theology and morality. Both. And that teaching cannot be changed. So the book of the Didache, which was used to teach catechumens in, uh, in 60 AD, we still have a copy of it. In 60 AD, this book states, abortion is crime. Today, of all the churches out there, which church keeps on teaching that teaching? Consistently. Catholic Church. What is the church that has always thought contraception is evil? The Catholic Church. The church does not derogate, does not change her stance when it comes to morality. If you go and survey the Orthodox churches, each church has a, her own opinion and what is right and what is wrong. Some allow divorce, some don't. Some allow contraception, some don't. They're not one. No matter how they want to slice it and dice it, they're not one. So therefore, you end up with only one church. Christ has one bride, not two. And it's the Catholic Church. Have I answered your question? Obviously, there's a lot more to it. And I really encourage you to dig into it. There's a lot more to this. All right? Yes. Because of the flood. Right? They are from Adam, obviously. We're all back from Adam, but are also from Noah. It's not either or. It's both. Yeah? They are breaking the, they're violating the rubric of the Latin Mass. The Latin Mass is very explicit. You're supposed to fold hands. You have to stand like this, your hand together in prayer, right? You're not supposed to hold hand, and you're certainly not supposed to elevate hand, and you're not supposed to do whatever you feel like doing. Let's not go there. Let's just not go there. But I'm just pointing out to you 
that it is against the rubric. And by the way, when you say every Latin church, let's, let's qualify that. In America. Yeah, in America. The Latin rite is one across all countries. Right? There's only one Latin rite. There isn't Latin rite for America and one for Canada and one for France. There's only one Latin rite, just as there's one Chaldean rite. It doesn't change. When we stick to the, the problem with breaking the little laws is that those little laws hold together the big ones. And you're chipping at the edifice. Today, you, I'll give you another example. In the, in the Diocese of Los Angeles and Orange County, they do not kneel at the second elevation. They stand. They just decided we're going to stand. Well, they decided before that they can hold hands. As soon as you introduce this principle that the lady can change things, they'll change things. And they'll change them so much that you end up with a Protestant church. That's why. But the ch- yes, I understand. The question is in the Maronite rite, it used to be that the priest faced towards the altar. Now it's facing the. Yes, in the rubric of the Maronite liturgy, you are allowed to do both. The rubric, the law permits you to do it. I'm not debating now what, what, I'm not debating what, whether we should or we shouldn't. I'm saying that when the church says in her documents, this is what you ought to do, then we ought to do what the church says. If the church changes, we change. If tomorrow in the Latin rite, the rubric says hold hands, we hold hands. But when the rubric says don't, you're not supposed to do that, and you do it, that is an act of rebellion. Maybe a small one, but it is one. And it's very dangerous. Because we are supposed to worship in harmony. We're supposed to represent heaven on earth. Where there's no contradiction. Everybody worships the same way. And we break that truth when we decide to do what we feel like doing. I mean, it's really not complicated. We cannot manufacture liturgy. We can't make a liturgy. Do you understand that? It's making liturgy. It's not part of the liturgy. The church says, stand, sit, kneel. We're supposed to do that. When we decide, we're not going to kneel. The church does this to kneel, but we're not going to kneel. We're going to stand. We're making liturgy. You understand? It seems minor, but it's really important. Yes? Oh, you just can find it on Google. Novus Ordo. Rubrics of the Novus Ordo Mass. Yeah, it's available. Yes? Didache. D-I-D-A-C-H-E. And it's fi- you can find the whole thing online on the Internet as well. Yes? No, it's not true love. That's the problem. There is a sincere love. But it's not true. That's the problem. St. Anthony of Padua had an argument with a, um, a um, what were they called? Uh, I forgot the name now. There were heretics, essentially. They broke away from the church and had their own laws. And that man was very sincere. Very sincere. Very devout. And St. Anthony told him, you are sincere, but you're sincerely wrong. You see, there, there, there are these two, there are three pillars. Truth, love, and faith. Take one away, you've taken everything. As simple as that. Our love of Christ must be founded on the truth that He revealed to us. We 
don't know who God is. If he did not reveal himself to us, we would know who he is. So we cannot love him. Anybody can love somebody who doesn't know? Can you? Go pick a name from the internet and say, I love this person. And repeat it every night. I love you. Is it going to get you anywhere? No. What happens? What makes you love somebody? The truth of that person. Who that person is. Yeah? Okay. So the truth of Christ is inseparable from his revelation. Therefore, it is inseparable from his church. Hence, as St. Augustine says, nobody has God as his father who does not have the church, meaning the Catholic church, as his mother. How do you know? What is the mark that someone loves Christ? He loves his church. That's how you know that somebody truly loves Christ. He loves the church. Not he tolerates the church. Not he's kind of in the church but really doesn't know why. Not he's in the church because his parents brought him here and he feels comfortable. None of that matters. He has a real love for the church. That's how you know. So someone who sincerely loves Christ and puts down the Catholic church does not love Christ in truth. Jesus told the Samaritan woman, who was also very sincere. She worshipped God, the same God, at Mount Gerizim, which was the temple that the kingdom of Israel built because they did not want to go back down to Jerusalem, which was in the kingdom of Judah. And that's why God sent them prophets after prophets for that reason. He didn't tell them, go and swear your loyalty to the corrupt princes of Judah. That was not the problem he had with them. His problem was, you're worshipping in a temple that I did not build. There's only one temple. One temple. Why one temple? Because there is one church. So these people out there are worshipping God. She was worshipping God. And she told him, you Jews say we worship, you worship in, uh, in Jerusalem, we worship here. Worship, where's the truth? What did Jesus answer? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for the truth comes from the Jews. Gospel of St. John. Fast forward 2,000 years. Somebody who does not love the Catholic Church, somebody who is not a member of the Catholic Church, worships what they don't know. And the truth comes from the Catholic Church. Simple. Now, we may be embarrassed, we may feel compelled to sort of sugarcoat it, to say it differently. And fundamentally, we are caught between two, a, hard and a, a rock and a hard place. The rock is that we might, we might um, what, what, what do we say, we might offend somebody. You know what? You are going to offend somebody. Or alienate somebody, right? But you're going to offend and alienate somebody, and here's your choice. You're going to offend and alienate a human being who's never going to judge you, or you're going to offend Jesus Christ and alienate Jesus Christ. Why? For whoever is, whoever is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of him before my Father. If you really care about your soul, and if you really care about salvation, you stand up for the truth no matter what. Now you do it as gently as you can, as with great charity, right? with great love. You do it carefully. You don't bash anybody on the head. 
But you know what? No matter how nice you are, when you say no salvation outside of the Catholic Church, please, 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 pretty please, you're going to offend somebody. Why? You're not dealing with pure rationale. You're dealing with sinful humanity. You're dealing with vices. You're dealing with the flesh. You're dealing with the world. You're dealing with the devil. What do you expect? Jesus said, they hated me before they hated you. Well, get on with it. Okay? There's, uh, there's no other way to say it. If there were, trust me, I would love to say it. It's not, I don't enjoy saying it as in, let me just, you know, hit people. No. But there is no other way to say it. Oh, so I missed the point. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Why did Jesus say that? Say what? Oh, but it's very simple. Let me tell you why. What he meant was this. He said it in two different occasions and, re, and he reversed it. In one case he said, whoever is with me, whoever is not with me is against me. And then he said also, whoever is not against me is with me. Right. right. What does he mean? He means the following. God placed in our soul the natural law. Not the law of natures. Not, you know, go jump around with rabbits and, and then, you know, hug them. No. The law of nature, those are the Ten Commandments. You shall not, you shall, you know, there's only one God, right? You shall not steal. You shall the Ten Commandments. What are the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are the law that God gave us for us to live righteously. However, in Ezekiel, he told them, he told Ezekiel, I gave them a law, meaning the Ten Commandments, by which they could not live. You're with me? He gave them a law by which they could not live. Where did you give it to them? Because, as St. Augustine said, the law was given that grace we may seek. And grace was given so that the law we may keep. We are all called, we are all obligated to keep the law. Yes? Yes. How do we keep the law? By grace. What Jesus' point is, is that the, the graces of the church flow invisibly into the world. Neither you nor I know who they're going to touch, because the wind flows wherever it wants. The Holy Spirit. Neither you nor I would know who is being touched right now because of the sacrifices, the rosary somebody prayed here. That person will act according to the teachings of the church, and he is not going to be adverse to her. Therefore, he's not against us. He's with us. That's what he meant. There's absolutely no contradiction. His intent is to say, don't assume that because somebody is registered and is physically present, that it's over. It isn't. Many who are here will end up in hell. Okay? The point he's trying to make is as follows. There may be those who die and who, when they hear, were not Catholic. They were not registered in the Catholic Church. But they lived by the graces of the Church. And had they recognized that, had they been taught about the Church and known about her, they would have gladly embraced the Church. But let me tell you this. They may die here not Catholic, but when they reach heaven, everybody's Catholic. There's only Catholics in heaven. You want to prove it to you? You want to prove? Very simple. Very, very simple. Let's take this guy. Let's take this guy. Let's take he's an Orthodox. Orthodox don't believe in the infallibility of the Pope, right? Don't believe in the infallibility of the Pope. Let's take this Orthodox. He lived the perfect life. He was absolutely living according to... But he always refused the notion that the Pope can be infallible. No way. Let's assume he gets to the pearly gate. And right there, there is the Lord, and St. Nicholas, and St. George, and St. John Chrysostom, calling him to get in. 
And he's about to take a step in, and the truth hits him of the infallibility of the Petrine office. Is that going to be heaven for him? Will that be heaven? Anybody has a, dares to give me an answer? Pardon? There's no way to omit one. That's the problem. The truth is one. Because, you see, here's the problem. The truth is not a book where you can come in and say, okay, I'm going to take these and drop those. What is the truth? It's a person. I am the truth, he said. Can you just chop a finger of Christ when you're in heaven? I'm not going to take all of Christ. I'm just going to take him minus one slice of his finger. Can you do that? You cannot take a bit of the truth. Because if you take a bit, you've taken it all. That's why. That is why somebody who is opposed to the Catholic Church will not make it to heaven. It's purely logical. Take a Protestant. He lived his life. He sincerely loves God. He loves God. He loves God. He gets there and they're all waiting for him to get in. He gets to the pearly gate. He's about to step in. He takes a look. He sees Our Lady enthroned as a queen of heaven and earth. What's going to happen to him? That's not heaven for him. That's not heaven. And there are no compartments in heaven. Or this is the heaven for the Catholics. And here's the heaven for the Protestants. And that's the heaven for the Orthodox. That's nonsense. Ah, ah, wait, 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 wait. Nobody's perfect. You're taking perfection in the wrong sense. First of all, we are called to be perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Gospel of St. Luke. St. Matthew. Luke, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Here's the deal. You're absolutely right. Otherwise, it would be impossible. We should be like God to know all the truth. That's not what he's asking us to do. You see? What do we say in the creed? That's a very good point. What do we say in the creed? I, hmm, in the Catholic Church. What is the hmm? Believe. Why do we have to believe? Believe calls upon what? Faith. I have faith in the Catholic Church, not I understand everything. What, do you say? what does it mean when you say, I believe in the Catholic Church? You mean this. Everything, everything that the Catholic Church, Church holds to be true, I believe in. That's what you're saying. Not I understand it. Jesus said, follow me. Right? I will lead you to the truth. The truth will set you free. Not sit down, learn, form a committee, study the thing, have a democratic vote over it, amend it a couple of times, right? Then you can follow me. No, 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 no. You follow first without understanding. He will lead you to the truth, you'll understand, and the truth will set you free. God gives you everything you need to understand. But your role is to say, Lord, whatever the Catholic Church holds to be true, I believe and I embrace joyfully because she is my mother and I love her. That is the real sense of belief. Okay? Yes. Ah, that's exactly. That's exactly. I'm telling you. That's exactly what he's going to ask you. What about the other ones? What have you done? Why do you think I leave my family with seven kids and I drive 40 miles down here to do this? Why am I doing this? You, feel, you really think I enjoy this? I'm scared silly of this. Every word I say, I have to get, render account. I completely understand what Moses said, go find somebody else. Trust me, if there was somebody else, 
I'd be glad to give him, you know, and go back to what I do, program and write architecture, much less dangerous job than this. <laughs> do you understand? But we are called. Why does he call us? I got no clue. But he does. You, you, what are you doing with your suffering? Are you offering it up for the salvation of souls? If you're not, get on with it. Do you understand? That's why you're here, for others. Yes? Those of you who have kids, and hopefully one of these days you're blessed having kids, or you have people around you, mothers, fathers, you'll understand exactly what I mean. Exactly what I mean. You know, your kid is sick. What do you do? What do you do? Sick. Really sick. Right? Take him to, right? Yeah. Why do you do it? But why? Why? Because you love her or him, right? Do you count the difficulty and the pain? You don't. You love. That's why. It's the same thing. The first thing you want to do is ask Christ to increase your love for Him. And, you do, and how does He do that? By those little acts. So, you're, I don't know, you're driving and something frustrates you. That is a gift. Take it and offer it. Lord, I offer it up for you. Gladly. And force yourself mentally to accept that. Now you've begun the struggle. Now you're on your way to really live your Catholic life. You understand? Those little things in life. That is living your life. Now you are giving Him these... Think of it as you're just giving Jesus a rose. Right? Every time you have a little pain, a little thing to come your way, or a big thing, whatever the case may be, you're giving Jesus a rose. But you understand you have to be in a state of grace. So, let me explain it, because it's important. Let's say you have a couple, there are so many in the church who are using contraception, or they got tubal ligation, or any of that nonsense they went through, because they didn't know. They're ignorant, but they did it. Do you realize that all their prayers, and all the masses, and all the acts of charity they do are worthless? They get nothing out of it? Nothing? Nothing. You realize that? They may be the nicest people in the world. They may be the most generous people in the world. But it's nothing why they are living in a state of mortal sin. So the first thing you're going to do is go to confession. Not that you're living in a state of mortal sin. Don't get me wrong. But I want to clarify this. Just somebody think I'm... I'm, Generally speaking, as a Catholic, you go to confession. And please, if you can, go weekly. Trust me, it's not enough. If you're really in the battle, it's not enough. It's barely enough. Weekly confession. It's not because you're great sinners, but because you need the strength that comes from this sacrament of mercy. Confession is a sacrament of mercy. God is there to give you mercy and show you His love. That's what confession is all about. Go to confession weekly. Then you're living your life in a state of grace. Then your offerings and your sufferings and your sacrifices have amazing values because they are linked and united to the suffering of Jesus on the cross. That's the order of things. Make sure you're in a state of grace. Okay? Anything that can cause you, lead you to sin, get rid of it. Get rid of it. TV, internet, music. Right? Get rid of it. This is a battle. You are in the middle of a pitched battle. And the enemy is fierce. This is not a promenade. Oh, I'm going to heaven. La, 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 la. Honey, pass me the sugar and the ice cream. You're not going to go, any, you're going to go very far like this. It's a battle and you have to fight. 
You want to be holy. You want So read the lives of the saints. Learn from them. Get inspired. So God can take your heart and turn it on, put it on fire. So, and ask for big things. That's how you do it. That's how you convert the world. One soul at a time. One little act of sacrifice at a time. Here's a beautiful story I'll tell you, and then we'll have to leave. Uh, there is a priest, he's a Lebanese priest. His name is Father Lebeke, and he came here. He wrote a whole bunch of songs that we all learned to sing when we were, kid, when we were kids. And he told uh, this little story. He was, uh, when he was young, he knew that he had a calling to the priesthood. So he went and told his mother, Mom, I think I have a calling for the priesthood. And his mother's response was, All right, I'll make sacrifices. See, the earlier question you asked me, how can we be perfect? This woman may not have had a high education. She certainly didn't have a PhD in theology. But she instinctively knew the faith. Her son wanted to make, to become a priest. She's going to help him by making sacrifices. And so she took a jar, and every time she made a sacrifice, she took a grain of wheat and put it in there. And the day Father Lebeke celebrated his first Mass, that host was ground from those grains of wheat. And then she told him, My son, the day that I move my room from down here to up there, I will continue to pray that you may never stray. What a woman! What holiness! What truth! She was very realistic. She wasn't, Woohoo! My son has become a priest. Next thing he's going to become a bishop. And then the Pope! I'll pray that you may not stray. She was very realistic. That's being a Catholic. There's nothing greater in the world than being a Catholic. There's nothing. Okay? I'm sorry, but there isn't. Alright? So, that's the bottom line. So think about it. Pray about it. Ask Jesus to open your heart to the love of His church. Ask Jesus to make you love the church. Really love the church. And then you will see how much your life becomes fruitful because of the love that you have for the church. All right? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.